God to Ezekiel chapter 14. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Ezekiel chapter 14. Give you a moment to find it and then we'll continue. Prophet Ezekiel chapter 14. The overwhelming preponderance of Scripture teaches that God is a merciful God, that He's a forgiving God, God of another chance, God of many chances, a God who restores our backslidings, a God who delivers, not because of us, but in spite of us, a God who stays His hand of judgment whenever we are most deserving of it, a God who stays His hand of judgment because someone has interceded and prayed. A loving parent, brother, sister, a grandparent, a work colleague, somebody interceded and stood in the gap for us. You think of Abraham, how in order to try to spare Lot and his family in Sodom, uh, how he bargained with the Lord. He says, if there be 50 righteous Men in the city, would you spare it? God said it would. If there be 45 in the city, would you spare it? God said it would. If there would be 30, if there would be 20, would you spare the city? I will spare the city. Lord, if there's 10 righteous men, would you still spare the city? I'll spare the city. Obviously, he couldn't find 10 righteous men because he didn't spare the city. But Abraham stood in the gap for at least Lot and his family. Paul on that ship going to Rome as a prisoner. If it wasn't for Paul on that ship seeking the Lord and getting the mind of God, who knows what would have happened? Because they thought to kill the prisoners rather than try to let them escape. But because Paul was on board and prayed and sought the Lord and interceded, God spared them all and every single one of them was saved alive. Moses the children of Israel, not for the first time. He stood in the gap for them when God was tired of them and was going to destroy all of them and said, Moses, I'll begin again with you. And Moses said, no. No, don't do that. They're your people. Spare them. And God spared them. Many a man or a woman is alive today and feels the Spirit of God striving with them, moving in their hearts, pleading with them because somebody prayed and stood in the gap. But there will come a time when no one's prayers will work. There will come a time when no one's prayers will stay God's hand. There will come a day when that invisible line will be drawn and will be crossed. And even though they may be living but there will be no more opportunity. In the Bible, we have seen this with nations and empires. Roman Empire, Syrian Empire, Babylonian Empire. Where are they today? In the history books, in the dustbin of history. They crossed a line and they are no more. We saw it with kings. We saw it with King Saul. How that God took his spirit from him 
And he lost his kingdom and his kingship. We saw it with the house of Eli, the priests. And how he would not deal with his own sons to the point came where that whole dynasty was gone. They crossed a line. And God was finished with them. We see it again and again. We saw it in the New Testament with Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit about what they had been giving to God. And they were gone. How and when does God draw the line in a man's life? Is it by the number of times he hears the gospel and refuses to receive it? Is it by the depths of a man's sins, by the hardness of a man's heart? Is it by the degree of backsliding? Nobody backslid more than Peter. He even denied that he ever knew Jesus. And yet, the Lord forgave him. The Lord forgave him. I often think about Judas when he kissed the master in the garden. Friend, betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? What do you think would have happened if at that moment, if Judas had a fell on his knees and said, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm truly, truly sorry. Please, please forgive me. I would like to think that Jesus would have forgiven him. But he didn't. And he went on. And he crossed the line. And he was gone to perdition. I think that all of this proves to me that only God can draw the line. If it was up to us to draw the line, we'd either do one of two things. We'd either draw it too soon or we wouldn't draw it at all. So it has to be left up to God. Only God knows the hearts truly of men and women. Only God knows how far they have gone in rejection and rebellion. So only God can draw the line. The elders of Israel had come to seek an audience with the prophet of God. That at least was a, a welcome sight that the nation's spiritual leaders would come to inquire of the Lord through the man of God. No doubt Ezekiel was anxious to hear the reason for their visit. But before they could ever speak a word, God spoke. In Ezekiel 14 verse 1, now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble in iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart, because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent, 
Turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes to stumble into iniquity then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me I the Lord will answer him by myself and I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb and I will cut him off from the midst of my people then you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet isn't just to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. And they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquires that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more among with all their transgressions. But that they may be my people and I may be their God, says the Lord God. Now listen to this. Then the word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it and I will cut off its supply of bread and send famine on it and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. And then further to that he adds in verse 18. Even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Wow, that's, that's pretty strong, isn't it? That's drawn a line, isn't it? Cross that line, there's no hope. Cross that line, it's gone forever. I remember one time, many years ago, a brother asked me to come to visit his dad, who was dying, elderly gentleman. I went to the hospital to visit him. I'll never forget it as long as I live. It was near midnight, and he was an unsaved man, his son was asking me to witness to him, share the gospel with him, which I did. And he listened. And I believed and I thought at that moment he was taking this in. And so therefore, after I shared the gospel very plainly and simply, I said to the gentleman, would you like to get saved? He said, I would. I says, Okay then let's pray right now. Let's do it right now. I'll never forget it. He looked at his son and he gave a half, kind of a half smile and he said, I almost bluffed him, didn't I? <laughs> a shiver run up my spine. You almost bluffed me? You're dying, you're on the edge of eternity and you're playing a game with your eternal soul? The son's face dropped, my face dropped, and he sat with that half smile on as I left. With those words ringing in my ears, I almost bluffed him. A few hours later, he was dead. As far as I know, went to a Christless grave, crossed the line. It's frightening, isn't it? So, what do these three men, Noah, Daniel and Job, 
What do they represent here? Why did God use those three names, those three great men? What is he trying to say? What warning is he giving? First of all, Noah. The antediluvian world, the world before the flood, was a very wicked and perverse generation. Violent, godless, corrupt, wicked in every thought and deed. In fact, if we have a little look at Genesis chapter 6, you'll see what I mean by that. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. And they were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now I don't want to go into the, because that's a very, very controversial portion of scripture there. Uh, theologians and commentators have argued about that for centuries. But all we need to know is whoever the sons of men and so forth were here, whoever he's talking about here, whoever they end to, whoever's born of them, whatever that was, we know that it caused great wickedness in the earth. And that's all we need to know tonight. And so Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth after he begot... Sorry, I'm in the verse chapter 5 there. No wonder you couldn't follow me. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days. Also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, there were mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God, and Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And you know then how he went on to make an ark. And in making the ark, he saved his family. A just man, a good man, a faithful man. Peter said in 2 Peter 2, 5, that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Hebrews 11 and 7, the writer says, Noah was a man of faith. And he prepared the ark for the saving of his household. And so for a very long time, Noah preached 
righteousness. He preached a right living before a holy God. He was a godly man in a godless world. He was a righteous man in a wicked, evil world. He lived till he was 950 years old. So he must have preached a long time. And he probably preached everywhere he went. He maybe preached in the streets, in the park. He maybe preached around the doors, maybe knocked on doors. Everywhere this man went, he was preaching righteousness, but nobody paid any heed. Nobody listened. And he only managed to save his family, eight in all, himself, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughters-in-law. That's all. Out of the whole earth at that time, nobody was listening. How many times did they hear him preach? How many times did he preach to his neighbors, to his daughters-in-law's parents, to friends, to families, to work colleagues, to business colleagues? How many times did he preach? How many times did they hear? How many times did they refuse? We don't know. But he did it for a long, long time. They probably laughed him to scorn. They probably treated him like an idiot. They probably said, we don't want to hear what this man's saying. Does this man not know this is the modern age that we live in? We don't want his religion rammed down our throats. Away with this man. He's a fool. Do you ever notice how on television and in movies they portray preachers as idiots and fools, or some insipid, weak, joyless, miserable, long-faced person. Did you ever notice how they do that? Isn't it interesting that Jesus said in Luke 18 and Matthew 24, that just before his return, it would be like as in the days of Noah. Is anybody listening at the minute? Aren't they making fun of us? Aren't they laughing at us? Hmm? Sure they are. But what they don't know is there's going to come a point when a line will be drawn. It'll be too late. And Noah built the ark. And whenever his family was in, the Bible says God closed the door. God closed the door. You can be sure when the rains came and the floods came and people were panicking, suddenly he wasn't an old fool anymore. Suddenly what the preacher said was ringing true. And you can imagine them running to that ark trying to get in, maybe battering on it trying to get in, but a line had been crossed. They had many, 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 many opportunities, years and years and years of preaching. And he refused it all. And God closed the ark. So even Noah, in his humanity, when he heard the screams of them outside, he couldn't open the door for God closed it. Because a line had been drawn. 
And so Ezekiel said that even if Noah was in the city, he could only manage to save himself by his own righteousness. Though Noah were in it, he should but deliver his own soul. That's how bad it was. What about Daniel? Daniel speaks of two things. Daniel was a man of prayer. He was a man of prophecy. He was a man of prayer. Even when threatened by death, even when they told that if anybody made a petition of anybody or any god except the king, he'd be put to death. What did he do? He went to his house. He opened his window towards Jerusalem as he did aforetime. And he prayed because he was a man of prayer. And nothing would stop him praying to God, even if it cost him his very life. In chapter 2 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It was a frightening dream. He saw this great statue, but the trouble was when he got up in the morning, he forgot what the dream was. So he gathered together all of his astrologers, his sorcerers, his wise men, his prognosticators, gathered them all together from Babylon. They said, I had a dream last night, and I want you to give the interpretation. But I forgot what the dream was. So you have to tell me the dream and then give the interpretation. And they said, King, if you would just tell us what the dream was, they said, hey, I forgot what the dream was. And if you don't tell me what the dream was and the interpretation, I'm going to cut you all in pieces. I'm going to make your house a gnash heap. And he meant it. He said, King, this is impossible. Only the gods would know what you dreamt. There's not a man in the country would know that. He says, you're just playing for time, he said. And the word went out to kill all of the wise men in the city. Daniel heard about it. And Daniel went to the man who was over him. He said, what's this all about? Because Daniel and the three Hebrew boys, were they were wise men in the city. So their heads was on the chopping block too here. He says, what's that all about? He told him. He says, let me go to talk to the king. He went to the king. Shows you the favor Daniel had. And Daniel says, just give me a little bit of time and I will seek the Lord and I'll tell you the dream. I'll tell you the interpretation. So what did he do? He went back to his three friends, three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He told them, he says, listen, let's seek the Lord here. Let's pray. And so they prayed and they sought the Lord and God gave Daniel the dream and the interpretation. And what a dream and what an interpretation. It was about the nations, the empires, not only that they were living in, but that which is to come. Not only that, it was about end time things that hasn't even still happened yet. But because they prayed, many, many, many of those so-called wise men were spared because he prayed. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of prophecy. His prophecies concerned kings and kingdoms and empires, and most especially his prophecies concerned the last days. 
when Christ would return. Even though it would be millenniums away. But he was a true prophet. And God gave him the visions and the dreams and the prophecies. And he prophesied. And in Daniel 12, 4, it says, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And then God said, Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Now, isn't that strange? After all of the dreams and all of the visions and all of the prophecies, many relating to the end time events, then he adds this. In those days, in the end times, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. If ever we are living in fulfilled prophecy, it's today. Once man invented the wheel, he was literally off and running, wasn't he? I mean, once he invented the wheel, that opened so many avenues of travel. And man has been traveling ever since. Nothing new in that. But the increase is incredible. It wasn't until the early 1900s that flight was invented. The men began to fly. Yeah, we had trains, we had horse and carriages, we had all those things, cars. But flying, only in the early 1900s, that's not that long back, you know. And suddenly the world became a very small place. And people rapidly began to fly. In 2014, they're expecting 3.3 billion people to travel by air. That's a third more than 2009. So it is increasing exponentially, staggeringly across the world. Airports can't cope because there's that many of us flying. In America, such a big country, flying is like taking a bus. It's like taking a bus just to another city. Commuters flying. And here's Daniel, millenniums ago. And God's speaking to him and says, Many shall run to and fro. He said, Knowledge would increase. Do you know that 78% of all the scientists that ever lived are living right now? 78% of all scientists that ever lived are living right now. They say that knowledge doubles every six years. And you could believe that, couldn't you? Although during World War II there was computers of a kind, both analog and digital, but they were as big as a room. I mean, they were monstrous things. The idea that somebody could have a personal computer in their living room or in their study or even in your pocket was just a pipe dream. It's not a pipe dream anymore, sure it's not. It wasn't until the 1970s that personal computers began to come. 
And that changed everything. Knowledge increased amazingly. And Tim Berners-Lee in 1989, when he came out with the World Wide Web, suddenly there was an explosion of knowledge all over the world. You can Google anything today, can't you? As long as Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything you read in Google. Somebody will get that tomorrow. But isn't it amazing? The amount of knowledge that is at our fingertips today. Amazing. I mean, sometimes people bring Encyclopedia Britannica into Joyce and shops to people. You couldn't give them away. You couldn't give them away. You might as well take them and burn them. Nobody wants them. You just Google it. Get it all on the internet. Or buy a disc with everything on it. But even though prophecy is being fulfilled every day of our lives, every time I open the paper, I'm seeing prophecy fulfilled. And yet, there are many people who are not listening. They don't care. They don't care about your prayers. They don't care about your prophecies. Though Daniel were in it, he should deliver but his own soul. What about Job? Job was a man of great patience, was he not? Remember how Satan came up before God and said, God says, well, what, what are you doing? Where are you going? He's walking to and fro throughout the earth. God said, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him. Perfect man. One who eschews evil, hates evil. Have you considered him? The devil says, of course I've considered him. But you've put a big hedge of protection around him. You've blessed him. You've protected him. No wonder he loves and serves you. But just withdraw that and he'll curse you to your face. <coughs> Job 1.18. Job 1.8, beg your pardon. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? He said, sure, but I can't touch him because you're protecting him. So God just removed a part of that protection. He said, well, go ahead. See if he curses me to my face. Go ahead, but don't touch his person. And you know the story how in just a few days he lost everything, everything. Family, his goods, his wealth, his riches, but he was still honoring God. Devil come back again. Ah, skin for skin, he says. Skin for skin. Just let me touch his body, then you'll see. God says, okay, but don't take his life. He came forth and smote him with boils from the head of his feet. A loathsome, stinking, sore disease. You know what Job said? Because he didn't have the understanding that we have. You know what he said? Even if God slays me, I'll still trust him. Then I shall come forth as gold. And all of that time, when he lost all of that and suffered all of that and had those so-called comforters come and make it worse for him, and all of that time, 
He was a man of patience. This is why James 5 and 11 says, Have you heard of the patience of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord? That the Lord is very merciful and compassionate? Ah. Job was a man who faced every onslaught of the evil one and he triumphed in spite of it. He was patient before God and he persevered before God. In spite of all that happened to him, God rewarded his patience and his faithfulness. In Isaiah chapter 5, God comes to Israel. In verse 1, Isaiah 5, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my well-beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, break down its wall, it shall be trampled upon, I will let waste, it shall not be pruned nor dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns, it shall also com- I also command the clouds that they rain not on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. God had a great expectation. He looked after it well. He planted it. He put a tar up to protect it. He did everything possible for it to produce good grapes. And instead, it brought forth wild grapes. There's a limit to God's patience. There's a limit. He will go far, but there comes a point where he draws a line and he goes no further. Ezekiel 15 will not read it, but he talks about the vine. And this vine in Ezekiel 15 produced nothing. Nothing. No grapes, not even wild grapes, nothing. Fit to be burned was all. He said, I can't even use a vine. He says, you can't even make a peg out of it. You know, you can't use a vine for anything. The wood's no good. Only fit to be burned. But he was patient. Jesus, in John 15, talks about the vine that does not bear fruit. It's cast forth as a useless branch. has burned. Let me show you God's patience. Be closed in a moment. Second Peter chapter three. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of a reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us the apostles of the Lord and Saviour, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts. 
and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, that's the heart of God. And that's the patience. Why is he still waiting to send the Son? Because he doesn't want men to perish. He's giving time, opportunity. And every time you witness, every time you share Christ, you're giving somebody time and opportunity for the mercy of God to touch the heart. But there will come a time when it will be too late, when it will be over, when the line will be drawn. Just back a little bit in James chapter 5. Verse 7, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. If the mercy and compassion of God, through preaching, through prayer, through prophecy, through patience, if that won't save a man, God has no more arrows in his quiver. If that won't do it, nothing's going to do it. And God will draw a line. Paul said it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Beloved, this is why I'm preaching this tonight. This is why I preached what I preached about last Sunday night because all of his friends, loved ones, work colleagues, neighbors who are perishing, who are lost and perishing, they need the Savior because there will come a day for them it will be too late. So we've got to do all that we can do to reach them for Christ. And yet God in his mercy still reaches out, doesn't he? Because oh, he only knows when the line will be drawn. We don't. He does. But we do know the time is short. And so we've got to share. And we've got to encourage. And we've got to pray. And we've got to reach out and try to win the lost. Amen? Let's pray. Young Becky's got to go. She's a meeting to take. Children's meeting she's got to take. So God bless you back as you do that. Though Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, 
they should save but their own soul because of their righteousness. Lord, we realize tonight from your word that this is a serious thing, that you don't play games with eternal souls. The cost has been too great. It cost you your very own son. It cost him his very own life. So Lord, these are grave matters. These are important issues. These are eternal things. Lord, help us to think of eternal things and to reach out to the lost and the dying in Jesus' name. Lord, give us the courage and the strength and the wisdom, the anointing, the ability to do all that we can do to reach men and women and boys and girls for Christ because surely we truly are living in the last of the last days. The signs of the ends of the ages are upon us and we recognize them. So Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that we will make it count for the Master. In Jesus' name, amen.